Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. We're already halfway through the week, but once again, it's great to be back on the air. And here, here we are once again with uh, discussing founding rivals, Madison versus Monroe. I tell you, there certainly has been a lot to discuss about these two men, but I would have to say that the discussions about each one of these men have been relevant, and nonetheless, um, we're going to continue to learn more about these men. Here we are now in the second um, part, or let alone the second act of Virginia's uh, ratification process and approving the Constitution. So when I was on the air with you all the other night, we were talking about the first part of the ratification convention that began on June the 2nd of 1788. Tonight's focus, um, or wherever you all are in the world, I should say, the focus uh, for this session, we'll talk about the second half or the second part of the uh, ratification convention and what was at stake and how um, both uh, Federalists and Anti-Federalists um, presented their uh, cases, but how uh, the final vote came about. And basically it was one that came very close. Uh, of course, Virginia did uh, ratify the Constitution, but I will have to say right now that it was by a very thin margin. But we will get to that part later on. But here we are again with founding rivals Madison versus Monroe, uh, the second act of the ratification stage. So uh, tonight's lead-off bonus question is going to be the following. What key issue of concern surrounding the Virginia Convention had potential, or let alone the greatest potential, to alter debates regarding the Constitution? I can tell you this much. It wasn't, uh, yes, there were concerns about the power of taxation that James Monroe had addressed um, from what I discussed in the previous night's uh, podcast. But the bigger issue at stake has to do with the Mississippi River, given that Virginia's western territories were home to a handful of wild card, or I should say undecided delegates, whom hailed from the Kentucky district, which bordered to the west of the river. So we have to remember, folks, all of this land that's that's in the western territories, none of that has been clearly established just yet. In other words, no states have been carved out. We don't have a Kentucky just yet. We don't have a Tennessee. We don't have, um, you know, I could even go further, you know, going west of Georgia. We don't have Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas. We don't have any of those states yet just yet. But the bottom line is, is that when you take a look at how big Virginia is, Virginia could claim, Virginia can say that she probably claims at least Kentucky, Tennessee, present-day West Virginia, Ohio, uh, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, even Wisconsin. The bottom line is Virginia could is claiming land that we now know as, pres, as eight modern-day present states. So, yes, the delegates that represent the uh, Kentucky district are going to be the ones uh, who will, they won't be the biggest problem, but yet they are going to uh, create tension and rift to where the primary uh, focus of the Virginia Convention, if someone doesn't step up to the plate and get it back on the right direction, will it will go completely on the opposite end to where 
the, the primary focus will be abandoned altogether. And of course the primary focus was yes to address the articles clause by clause, but to also ensure that ratification was possible at every angle because if ratification is not done, then those who are opposing this document will not only claim victory but want a second convention and and that's the biggest fear that uh, men like James Madison and Governor Edmund Randolph have the most significant fear of and I can I'll certainly address more of that later but the bottom line is is that if you lose the primary focal point of why you're attending this convention then you run the risk of anarchy not just from the from a national perspective but anarchy from within your own state so would James Madison address the issue of the Mississippi River to delegates at the convention absolutely yes he made it clear that under the Articles of Confederation that there were no protections in the best interest of the American people and how true that was but under, under the new Constitution, there would be better protection given that Congress itself would have broader authority in providing necessities, or I should say a variety of necessities, that would revolve around establishing a system of defense. So in other words, yes, when we think of a system of defense, we, talk, we think of military purposes, but under this new Constitution, there would be the federal government would have the power to um, carve uh, territories into states. They would the federal government itself would have the authority to um, admit um, territories that would become states into the union. But under the Articles of Confederation, none of that existed. Our next bonus question is the following: What did James Madison himself see? as a grave danger to the nation's liberty, or to our nation's liberty, let alone. Believe it or not, it was out-of-control national debt. And how true that is, because our young republic at this time, folks, has a huge debt problem. You know, we owe lots of money still to France, and there are plenty of... Um, of people who still owe money to creditors, most notably British creditors, over outstanding debts that were incurred during the, the American Revolution and even just after the Revolution, especially those who are um, shipping goods to England from the mercantile industry. But the bottom line is, is that um, our young nation or let alone Republic, under this failed Articles of Confederation, has no means of going about collecting revenue. But under a new government, you would be able to have um, broader means to collect uh, revenue through means of taxation from the national government. But if the government cannot pay its debts off, then the, the, um, the deficits itself will continue to grow, and then that also means um, a higher uh, percent of, of interest that would have to be paid in return off of the existing debts. So for James Madison, if the national debt issue does not get resolved, 
our country could uh, face um, further bankruptcy problems or let alone uh, collapse due to financial insolvency. In other words, a lack of um, financial stability, a lack of um, fiscal control. But for James Madison, direct taxation from the national government would free American people or free the American people in general from unnecessary burdensome obligations to creditors. And how so? Because this would remove all unnecessary legal hardships via the form of contracts or leases. So, you know, it's one thing to owe a debt to someone, but if you are under a contract and all of a sudden you can't repay the debt, then it becomes harder or let alone all the more difficult to get out of an agreement. So this is what James Madison's very afraid of, is that, you know, if if there's no direct form of taxation from the national government, then how are people going to ever be relieved of uh, burdens that they were already under, uh, whether it was under the Articles of Confederation or during the actual Revolutionary War itself. A lot of uh, questions that have to be um, answered, there may not be any true 100%, uh, what do you call it, resolution from both parties at stake here, but this is where compromises will have to come into play. This is where people will have to set aside some uh, personal ideological uh, stances and just go with the flow and say, okay, I may not have to like everything about this document, but if it's the best that we can do for right now, then it's better than nothing. Unfortunately, there are, there are those who um, wish to not see it that way. Of course, I think the best example is a Patrick Henry whom I mentioned from the previous night's podcast, and I will be mentioning about him again um, later on. Another bonus question is the following. Would James Madison make any reference during the debates regarding a Bill of Rights and its significance for establishing religious freedom? The answer is yes. He believed that true or let alone real religious freedom came from a multitude of different religious sects. And in his eyes, this prevented a single denomination in establishing religious superiority above all others. Well, it is good to have, in James Madison's eyes, he has seen, um, he's now seen Virginia improve He's seen Virginia make, for example, make a big 360 turnaround. You know, for the longest time, he grew up in a, not only in a colony, but in a state where only one religion was tolerated, and that was the Church of England, or let alone the Anglican Church. And where Madison went to college in New Jersey, being the College of New Jersey, or what we now know as Princeton, he's he was um, exposed to um, good quality religious diversity. But when he came back after his college days were over, he saw how um, people, most notably of uh, Baptist faith, had been persecuted vigorously, all in the name of their um, different um, 
religious beliefs, but how they uh, preach their faith and how, uh, in the eyes of the Anglican Church, it was um, non-conforming. So, for Madison, yes, if you have a multitude of sects, so for example, like in Virginia, you have Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Quakers, maybe even Unitarians, for all we know. If you have a broad range of um, of those uh, types of uh, Protestant denominations, and they are the majority, then they can all serve as a check and balance system to keep those whom we now refer to as Episcopalians, who um, have de- who derive from the Anglican Church, we can keep them in check, knowing that they will not um, no longer make the Episcopal Church as the official uh, state religion in Virginia. So, basically, the diversity of religious groups alone enabled for a broad spectrum of um, promoting religious freedoms, let alone, instead of having a document by itself to enforce those guidelines. So, here's a fundamental argument right here. If you're an anti-federalist, you want to make sure that there is wording in the Constitution that will actually say, hey, we are entitled to freedom of religion, but that no state has the right or authority to oblige its people to adhere to one religion. In other words, every state must adhere to the rules of separation from church and state. So basically, Madison, Madison believes that, hey, if there are a diversity of religious groups, then why go the extra mile to have to write it out on paper? Well, eventually we're going to find out down the road in another podcast that even some of his views in the present moment may have to change in order to ensure that um, that there is no further conflict that could lead to religious warfare in, in the United States, or let alone uh, religious uh, persecution. Now, would the Federalists, along with the Anti-Federalists, have differences over power or let alone authority behind treaty ratification process. Yes, Federalists under James Madison's leadership guidance emphasized that the Senate, or the upper body of Congress, would have the sole power to approve treaties with two-thirds majority vote. So, basically, in the upper house being the Senate... The upper house has the authority to approve treaties. The president can recommend that the United States go into a treaty with, say, um, Spain, for example. However, the Senate has the sole power to debate on on the um, what do you call it? on the uh, issues surrounding uh, treaty ratification. But the Senate, of course, must consult with the President about it. But the bottom line is is that um, the upper um, body, given it's a smaller number of um, men at the time, and it still is even today, in modern-day times, 
but given that it's an upper body and a smaller number, they have broader, they are entitled to have broader powers when it comes to uh, international ratification of a treaty. James Madison, though, um, under the Articles of Confederation, James Madison knew that only nine states had the power to be able to fully ratify a treaty, but due to existing deficiencies under the Articles of Confederation, Madison knew just how easy it was for foreign nations. And this is where we go back to the Mississippi River issue, folks. James Madison knew under the Articles of Confederation just how easy it was for foreign nations like Spain, who controlled the Mississippi River Territory, to manipulate a weak nation like the United States with unrealistic demands. So, this is where the the nitty-gritty part comes into play, how, you know, here we are living under this weak system of government that does not give Congress any kind of broad power when it comes to conducting foreign affairs, and here 13 states could have their own form of uh, foreign policy, uh, this is where the 360 comes into play, the 360 turnaround. In James Madison's eyes, the new government alone would deter threats from foreign nations. So in other words, Spain is um, going to do whatever it takes to make our life miserable over how we're going to be able to get that Mississippi River territory from them. But under the Constitution, under this new Constitution, we have a better um, direction over how we can go about uh, conducting business with foreign nations, meaning not just the national government, but the upper body being the Senate. We're moving on here. The next bonus question is the following that does pertain to um, U.S. rights to the Mississippi River, and it was uh, from the Anti-Federalist side. Which Anti-Federalist leader believed that U.S. rights to the Mississippi River were more vulnerable under the new Constitution? His name is uh, William Grayson, and it turns out that we have a county out in far southwest Virginia known as Grayson, called Grayson County, named in honor of uh, Senator... uh, He would go on to become one of uh, Virginia's first uh, U.S. Senators, um, Mr. William Grayson and um, William Branch Giles of uh, Giles County, which is uh, also way out in southwest Virginia. But William Grayson became very convinced uh, that if there were less than 26 senators... Now, we have to remember, folks, we have 13 states in 1788. So when the first Congress convenes, or the first few Congresses that will convene, we will only have 26 senators. And remember, under the great compromise that uh, Roger Sherman of Connecticut um, put into play at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, he basically said that... uh, representation in the House of Representatives would be based upon um, population, but that every state, regardless of its size, would get two senators. So here we are uh, in 1788 that each state has two senators, 
and there will be 26 senators. That's, that's obviously a full body right there. What William Grayson is very concerned about is that if you all of a sudden, let's say, all 26 senators don't get together to um, discuss uh, treaty um, ramification matters regarding um, the uh, rights to the Mississippi River and acquiring that from Spain. Let's say that only um, a half or let alone um, less than 26 convene. Well, I can tell you this right now. You, let's say you don't have 26 senators um, all together. What would be the number that you would need to have in order to conduct um, official business? 14, that would be, that's the quorum, the maximum, um, the minimum quorum number for official business. The maximum would obviously be more than 14, close to 26. But what w William Grayson was worried about, and I think this was a uh, very smart proposal, or let, let alone a concern, was that if two-thirds, if only two-thirds of a quorum showed up, meaning 10, I take it back, 14 is a maximum, but if the minimum is 10, let's just say two-thirds of, of the quorum showed up being 10, what William Grayson feared was that 10 senators present being a small number could have the, could have the extreme potential to exercise their rights to give away the Mississippi River Territory to Spain altogether. So it's not a question of always having a majority. It's the biggest fear is having a question of just a minority of um, senators who could do the unthinkable, and that is to vote on something without having a full quorum present to where um, power all of a sudden is placed in the hands of a few only to um, sell something to a nation who um, is not even looking after our own interests. So another question here to think about is the following. Did men like James Madison and Governor Edmund Randolph become all the more discouraged over delegates' actions from the Kentucky District regarding the Mississippi River Territory issue? Yes, both men believe that the convention's purpose was moving in the wrong direction because the Kentucky District delegates spent more time focusing on individual concerns versus matters impacting the ability to ratify the Constitution with minimal conflict slash drama. Well, there you have it, folks. You know, yes, there are going to be issues that are sensitive. There are going to be issues that are going to ignite flames or are going to make people become a little bit more hostile. But the problem is that if you don't get your emotions in check, if you can't set aside your personal feelings, then how are you going to be able to conduct not just official business, but how are you going to be able to keep what's, official, what's considered official business in check? So, the bottom, so the, basically, here's basically a problem where Delegates are so caught up in the moment that they are that they lose sight of what's around them. But thank heavens that uh, James Madison and uh, 
Governor Edmund Randolph have enough courage to take a stand and say that enough is enough. Uh, we've got more pressing issues to to consider. After all, we don't have three to four months to sit here and debate on this stuff. We've got a timeline to meet. You know, eight states have already ratified this document, and we need and we need to get more than eight states because if not, then this Constitution alone is not going to be considered an official legal binding document. Now, where James Monroe, as I mentioned from the previous night's podcast, uh, did attend the convention. And let me all let me ask you all this: Would he debate James Madison on election procedure matters? Yes, Monroe's concerns involved power, or let alone authority, over how and when congressional elections would take place. Under the new Constitution. Elections for Congress would be regulated by state legislatures. But Congress, on the other hand, would have the power to alter state regulations. I, I see this as um, a compromise. So in other words, elections for Congress would be regulated by state legislatures, but Congress can, could come back and say, hey, they could, Congress has the power to alter those regulations. So in other words, one um, level of government is not in complete control of everything, in complete control over this issue. Now, um, here's a good bonus question here involving James Monroe. Why did James Monroe believe that election of the president ought to be revolved around a popular vote versus an electoral college. Well, for James Monroe, uh, the popular vote meant that power itself would become evenly distributed versus being placed into the hands of a few whom he believed didn't represent the nation's best interests as a whole. The popular vote, as we all know, is ba- is based upon uh, people well, in today's time going to the polls to vote. Uh, of course, popular vote even in the 18th century, yes, people did go to vote, but only a certain group of people were allowed to, and that usually, for one, it was white men, but two, uh, if you lived, say, in Virginia, um, mostly it was uh, men who were primary, who were... Um, well-to-do landowners, and those who, say, own maybe 50 acres or more of land, but you basically had to have a um, certain acreage amount of land just to qualify in Virginia to be an eligible voter. And most notably, even leading up to the American Revolution, for example, you had to, in order to serve in the House of Burgesses, you had to uh, be um, of the Protestant faith, obviously to the Anglican Church. But, of course, by uh, 1787, 1788, that's starting to change, all for the better. But the popular vote meant that the people's voices had been heard, whereas with uh, the Electoral College, the Electoral College, in James Monroe's eyes, um, he felt it was a system that didn't um, cater to... um, 
the greater people's uh, interests. And he does have a point. Of course, people still even debate that in today's time about the Electoral College. James Monroe also believed that that small states, especially like, say, Delaware, New Jersey, Maryland, for example, um, he believed that small states were the ones who posed the greatest risk in conspiring to where presidential election could become, um, what do you call it, could become jeopardized. In other words, he feared that if uh, small states had the potential to conspire in a presidential election, that where the electoral vote itself would become deadlocked, the House of Representatives would decide who would, who would be the real winner of the election versus the people. In other words, the popular vote would, be, would, would have no um, true meaning. On the, on the flip side, uh, James Madison saw the Electoral College as a means of, of essential security to the election process. He viewed the Electoral College as a, as a body that could help prevent corruption to cabal. Does anybody know what cabal is? All right, well, cabal is basically another term of um, overthrowing or removing someone from an elected post. The most famous cabal that I know of at this time, it happened before the Constitution itself went into play, but it was during the American Revolutionary War where there was a plot to remove George Washington as commander of the Continental Army. Thank heavens that this uh, cabal did not uh, go through because if it had, I'm not, I'm not so sure we probably would have even defeated the mightiest military empire in the world. But it was a dangerous uh, plot. It involved uh, people from all um, levels of um, not just society, but from within um, the Continental Congress, as well as uh, military officials. I can give you a good example of a military uh, person who so desperately wanted to succeed George Washington as commander of the Continental Army, Horatio Gates. It's a good thing that one didn't happen because uh, Horatio Gates was a complete opposite of George Washington. Um, but uh, the bottom line is that uh, cabals, not just in modern day times, but even in 18th century times, posed a grave danger. And so thank heavens that this uh, plot was overthrown, was thwarted. But yes, in James Madison's eyes, he saw the Electoral College basically as a means of preventing corruption to a cabal. In other words, as as important as popular vote itself is, the popular vote alone cannot secure, uh, what do you call it, a smooth transition of, of power it cannot um, guarantee that um, elections are always going to be fair. Uh, popular vote, we have seen in many nations throughout the world where popular vote has um, disrupted a government's ability to function. So whether people out there like it or not, the popular vote in the Electoral College are their own systems of checks and balances. Without an electoral college, 
there's no guarantee, as I said earlier, there's no guarantee that popular votes alone would ensure peace or let alone um, a smooth transition in uh, power. I'm almost wondering if what we're seeing right now with our current commander-in-chief in the United States, if some of that's come into play. But, of course, he did not win the electoral vote nor the popular vote. That's a whole other subject, though. So here's another bonus question to think about. Uh, did James Madison advocate for just one Supreme Court, or let alone one national Supreme Court, during the debate on Article Three, which of the Constitution, which uh, focused on the judiciary system. Yes, James Madison himself believed that one Supreme Court, or let alone one national Supreme Court, I should say, would help promote stability in determining the validity of laws passed before Congress and states. What does validity mean? It's it's another word for valid. In other words. If a law is deemed to be valid, then it's constitutional. If it's if a law is invalid, that means it's no it's not constitutional. It has say violated free speech, for example, or if the law itself has violated one's right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. So, um, by having uh, one national supreme court. The, the rulings in general on whether a law is found to be constitutional or vice versa, as I mentioned a moment ago, would be um, essential to the United States Supreme Court because they are the, um, the law, it's the law of the land, and, and if you have uh, other courts challenging um, federal laws, which, say, a federal uh, district court can do, but a federal district court alone is obviously different from it, from the United States Supreme Court. But for James Madison, um, a United States Supreme Court must be one that ought to show signs of impartiality. In other words, the United States Supreme Court's job is not to uh, favor one side over the other. Its its primary purpose is to determine that what's brought before them is constitutional or not, but whether or not it's, if it was constitutional at one time, is it still constitutional in, um, in the present moment? A good example might be uh, of a United States Supreme Court case that was a landmark one was back in 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education. Basically, it was a whole series of cases that were uh, that led to um, that led to uh, Brown versus the board. They were all compiled into one. And what I do know is that uh, the late Linda Brown, who passed away about two or three years ago, had um, been forced to uh, go to a school district that that for one was not in her in her home district, but but was forced to go there because of the uh, issue regarding um, the practice of um, racial segregation that went on. An unfortunate period of time. 
And so it wasn't so much a question right here of whether or not segregation was constitutional or not. That was a big issue. The bigger issue was that about 60 years earlier, a case known as Plessy versus Ferguson in Louisiana, uh, the United States Supreme Court took up and ruled that uh, segregation at that day and time was constitutional as long as there were separate and equal, as long as all facilities were separate and equal. Well, 60 years later in 1954, Earl Warren, or the Warren Court, ruled nine to nothing that segregation was inherently unconstitutional. And rightfully so. That, in other words, school districts had to um, accommodate people, uh, not just... um, they had to accommodate people of all races. They could not discriminate on race, and they could not um, favor one race over the other, just because of um, just because of whatever practices were going on in the past. In other words, the Warren Court overturned Plessy versus Ferguson, which had been in existence for about sixty years. Of course. Th- that whole uh, matter onto itself right there didn't go away overnight. There, were, there would still be plenty of other unfortunate um, issues to um, grapple with. But basically, this is an example right here of where the Supreme Court would have to show signs of impartiality. In other words, they will certainly listen to both sides of your story, of the story itself, but the decisions that they make are not based on favoring one side. They are looking at uh, past precedents, past legal precedents, as well as the existing uh, precedents, and are determining that, hey, given what happened 60 years earlier, does it still apply in today's time? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, when Brown versus the Board of Education was ruled upon, the Warren Court overturned Plessy versus Ferguson from 60 years earlier. So the bottom line is this, folks. What James Madison has envisioned is that a United States Supreme Court does ha- not only has the power to strike down laws that are unconstitutional, it has the right to uphold laws that are constitutional, but but they must look. But the court itself has to look at uh, past precedents as well as precedents that exist in the present and how those precedents will go forward in the future as time goes along. Here's another bonus question. Despite not signing the Constitution in Philadelphia, did George Wythe attend the Virginia Ratification Convention? Yes, he did. And if any of you all out there aren't sure who George Wythe is, well, he is a very, very famous Virginian. He truly is America's first um, professor of um, law. After all, he is uh, the leading um, law expert in Virginia. He has mentored men like Thomas Jefferson. And, of course, Thomas Jefferson himself thought the world of George Wythe. Matter of fact, Jefferson and Wythe had a lot of things in common. Uh, They both sadly lost their fathers at very young ages, but Thomas Jefferson would go on to see George Wythe 
is like the father he never had, with himself also mentored um, a future Supreme Court, or I should say a future United States Supreme Court Chief Justice, and that being John Marshall, with also mentored James Monroe, along with some other um, prominent uh, Virginians who would go on to have successful political and legal careers. But for George Wythe's presence, he advocated for having uh, various amendments uh, be placed or let alone applied to the Constitution, but he understood at the same time how essential the document was to the, na to the nation's well-being and supported its ratification. So in other words, Wythe knew that that the Constitution itself might not be 100% perfect to everyone, but he knew that it was the best that the delegates that, as a whole in Philadelphia were able to come up with. I mean, after all, with himself was there, and yes, he would have signed it had his wife not been gravely ill, and sadly she uh, lost her life, but had she not died, he would have signed the document. And here we go with Patrick Henry. I meant I told you all earlier that I would uh, mention his name again. Patrick Henry decides to propose a list of amendments and rights to be sent to other states before ratification. Now, this is a crazy idea, folks. You know, this is where, in today's time, we would have to say, hey, look, if you want to seek advice from others, that's fine. But depending on the matter... Sometimes other people aren't going to always be around to tell you what you should or shouldn't be involved in. They're not going to always be around to tell you what, what, um, what you should or shouldn't do in terms of making an important decision. This is where even you yourself as an individual have to make the decisions on your own. And whatever decisions you make, you have to uh, live with those um, choices and hope that, um, that they are for the better but if they're not, you've got to find a way to learn from those mistakes and make sure that they don't happen again. Well, why would Patrick Henry want to be turning to the state, to other states, for um, various lists of amendments and rights? Well, for one, I think the guy is very desperate. And two, you know, here he is opposed to the Constitution, but yet he wants to know, okay, what, is, what do Maryland and Pennsylvania think? of these proposed ideas. Well, Maryland and Pennsylvania have already ratified the document. If they've already ratified it, then they're satisfied with, with what was already um, established from Philadelphia. It's all his way of... Um, I almost have to wonder if this is like the equivalent of a modern-day filibuster. Of course, if, when a filibuster happens, that's where a legislator or a group of legislators have the floor for an unlimited number of hours to where they can um, stall um, pending legislation from going any further. They can even um, talk about um, a bill or talk about what they want going into play to the point where it delays um, it delays passage in general. So what I see Patrick Henry doing right here is a it's a it's not a huge form of filibustering, but it's a um, a mild form of it. But on the other hand, if it went unchecked, 
it could pose greater problems for um, immediate ratification of the Constitution. But thank heavens we have Governor Edmund Randolph, who views these um, lists of uh, amendments and rights. He views these requests by Henry as being irrelevant because he knows that any major delay in Virginia's ability to ratify the Constitution will basically put the nation's uh, well-being at stake. After all, folks, Virginia and New York are looking after one another and guiding one another. And, of course, um, we already know that uh, Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Massachusetts, Connecticut, um, Maryland, and South Carolina have ratified the Constitution. So, besides Virginia, that leaves New Hampshire, New York, North Carolina and Rhode Island, but of course, you know, Rhode Island, they're in their own world, and Virginia has more, has far more other concerns than to be worried about Rhode Island at this time, because uh, Rhode Island may have to just fall flat on their face and learn for themselves why they um, had to act so ignorant. Well, like Benjamin Franklin... James Madison himself knew that the Constitution itself wasn't perfect, but it was the best document to have been created for its time. Madison knew Virginians would have their differences, but ratification of a new document had to take precedent before adding on items currently left out, like the Bill of Rights. And it's true. You can't have everything into a document at one time, but it is important to have what's necessary so that you at least have a 101 playing field to go by. I learned this uh, some years back when I thought I was going to uh, go into teaching. or At one time I thought about teaching special ed. It, it didn't work out. But I do remember um, what the um, teacher told our uh, class that I was in. It had to do with what's called FAPE, Free and Appropriate Public Education. I, I, I always remember what this uh, teacher said. Free and appropriate public education does not guarantee you, guarantee you a Chevrolet, or let alone, I take it back, a Cadillac. It only guarantees you a Chevrolet. In other words, a 101 playing field it, it can't provide you top-of-the-line access to everything, but it can provide you with access to what's appropriate and necessary so that, so that a, um, a, a family's uh, child can have his or her needs met on the utmost appropriate level. So, as for the United States Constitution, it's not going to guarantee any of the, of the delegates uh, Cadillacs. It will only guarantee them Chevrolets. But over time, the Chevrolets can evolve and adapt to new um, periods of time to where whatever language had been written in the Constitution will also um, adapt to new uh, settings where issues um, are brought before, say, the United States Supreme Court or let alone Congress to debate on. So basically... I rest my case here where, uh, as Madison said, and as well as Benjamin Franklin, that the Constitution itself wasn't perfect, but it was the best document to have been created for its time. So in other words, you may not have to agree with everything in terms of the language that's written in the document, 
but you can be thankful that you have something to go by because without this constitution, you're going to be going 100 steps backwards under that, under that Articles of Confederation that has no solid structure to um, adhere by or let alone, um, or I should say, a uh, proper system of checks and balances. I'd rather take the Constitution over the Articles of Confederation any day. Well, here we go, folks. Um, the next bonus question is this. Uh, would Virginia be the ninth state to ratify the Constitution? Uh, the answer is no. That honor went to New Hampshire, which did so on June the 21st of 1788. But four days later, being the 25th, Virginia ratified the document by becoming the 10th state to do so. And as I said earlier, the vote was a very, very slim margin of approval, 89 to 79. Remember, 168 delegates, 89 vote yes, 79 no. We can breathe a sigh of relief, but I don't think we can celebrate like there's no tomorrow. Because in the days after the Virginia Convention in the days after ratification, rather, I should say, the Virginia Convention um, issued a committee report that um, included a Bill of Rights with 20 provisions as well as 20 structural amendments to the Constitution. So therefore, there's really not a whole lot of time for celebrating, given just how close the final vote for ratification turned out. And in the days after ratification took place, anti-federalist Members led by William Cabell and David Mead Randolph tried to persuade Patrick Henry to um, protest the new government at all costs. If there's anything good that Patrick Henry might have done after the convention, he declined the requests by these two federalist dele anti-federalist delegates. He kept um, the heat on, but he pursued he pursued keeping the heat on through proper legal outlets. So, in other words, Patrick Henry didn't lead a, um, a he didn't lead what you call uh, protesters um, onto the streets and um, say, "Hey, let's go and vandalize the buildings around us because we're in opposition to this document." He did the right thing by saying, "Okay." I'm going to take it up through the proper legal system channel. All right, well, what's unique about July 2nd, 1788? It's the, it's the day where Alexander Hamilton, who is the lead um, chairman for the New York uh, Ratification Convention, he receives a letter confirming Virginia has ratified the Constitution. New York is faced with um, some tough choices of its own. They have the choice of joining the Union with ratification or holding out. It will take another 24 days come July the 26th, where New York votes 30 to 27 to become the 11th state to ratify. Well, that leaves North Carolina and Rhode Island as the two holdouts. The bottom line is this, folks. When New Hampshire ratified the Constitution, being that ninth state, the Constitution itself became, or I should say officially became, our nation's legal binding governing document.
So now we have a, a, a national binding document to refer to as a document that is um, one that uh, supersedes uh, state constitutions. It makes the national government now the head government or the head governing body that would supersede uh, the states. In other words, the states will no longer have the power to uh, conduct business with foreign affairs. The states will no longer have uh, biz- will no longer have the rights to um, to uh, raise taxes on the national government. The states will have their own rights, but but those rights will have to be um, they'll have to be better interpreted than say what was uh, under that um, fledgling government of the Articles of Confederation. Lastly, to end our um, discussion, why did James Madison see a second constitutional convention as being ever so dangerous? Well, he saw extreme potential for a new constitutional document. He saw, I take it back, he saw extreme potential for the new constitutional document that had been created in Philadelphia in 1787 to be completely eliminated altogether. Not just the document itself, but the union as a whole would no longer become joined together as one. It would become split into multi into uh, multiple sections, you might have a northern confederacy, a southern confederacy, a middle confederacy. If that happens, there basically would be no um, United States. In other words, the um, the fledgling ex- system of government would reign once again as being superior for all the wrong reasons. Articles of Confederation. So. Basically, if a second convention occurred, folks, it would basically um, destroy the United States as we know it. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and uh, Virginia took a huge step. It wasn't an easy one. Even with a thin margin of vote, we still prevailed, but we also don't have a whole lot of room to... um, to engage in in a multitude of uh, celebrations because we still have a lot of work, not just in Virginia, but we have a lot of work now as to knowing, okay, where is the national government going to be located and how, who's going to be our president? Um, How, how is uh, Congress going to address the president? Or, I mean, is Congress going to call our leader a president or what title? So in our next podcast, when I'm back on the air, we're going to talk about those things because, yes, it's one thing to approve of a constitution or ratify it. Now you've got to decide, okay, how, where are we going to meet as a governing body and how can we ensure that uh, regardless of political ideological issues, how can we find ways to get along with one another? How can we learn to disagree without being disagreeable? How are we going to compromise on both sides of the aisle? Well, thank you, and um, have a good rest of your all's evening, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Good night.